listening to the Bible 126 show. First and second Samuel are one book in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, so we'll just keep rolling. Huh? And uh, the first uh, 10 chapters or so are David's um, triumphs, his successes. And um, we're going to be having an overview of 40 years of rule, seven and a half years, in other words, a little over seven years for the southern kingdom. And then he'll ultimately take over the northern kingdom, Israel also, combining the, the two houses into one unified nation. And he'll rule the northern kingdom and Judah and Israel together for about 33 years for a total rule of about approximately 40 years, actually 40 and a half years. And uh, we're going to get an insight in the next 10 chapters of the man. Up till now, we've been watching him flee Saul, and, and uh, Saul is now behind us, and David is, uh, the, the, the train is clear to take over the throne. And um, it's interesting that all the opportunities that David had to... Uh, uh, take charge. He didn't. He left it to the Lord in the Lord's own timing. And uh, his time, and, and now he's going to uh, hear in the first chapter, hear of Saul's death and uh, uh, start to position himself for the whole kingdom. We'll get some insight into the man spiritually. We'll see his concern for the ark and his concern for the temple. And uh, we'll also see his military successes. He's quite a effective military leader also. Interesting guy, David. Poet, Ministry of Music, Ministry of Music, and uh, first-rate military leader. In those days, that was important. Tough times. And also, uh, all in all, doesn't do a bad job. He does get in trouble later on, and we'll see that too. We'll see both sides of the man. But uh, let's go into Second Samuel chapter one, verse one. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. And David had abode two days in Ziklag. It came to pass on the third day. One of these days, I'm really going to have to do a study of the third day. Um, the third day occurs so often. In some cases, it's very prophetic and significant and typologically relevant. Other cases, it may not be. But in any case, here again, we come to uh, is on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. I don't know if the clothes were torn and the dirt on his face was from the battle or whether he's pulling the same stunt that those guys did in the days of Joshua, made themselves look like they've been through the battle. You know, We'll see here shortly. Anyway, verse 3. David said unto him, From where comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. David said unto him, how went the matter? See, David doesn't heard yet what's happened. We, we've uh, cheated. See, we've read the last chapter of 1 Samuel, so we don't know what went on here. But, but David is just going to find out here. Uh, uh, I pray thee, tell me. And he answered, the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. And David said unto the young man who told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan his son are dead? The young man who told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear. And lo, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called unto me, and I answered, Here am I. He said unto me, Who art thou? 
And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. That must have gone over great. But anyway, verse 9. He said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, over me, and slay me, for anguish is come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood over him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after he was fallen. And I took the crown that was up on his head, and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them here unto my Lord. Now, this story of the Amalekite, uh, the commentators have several different views. Some commentators believe that uh, Saul, when he leaned on his spirit, didn't fully die and was concerned, and that this is valid. Most commentators feel that this is all just a fabrication on the part of the Amalekite to win David's favor. He apparently happened on the battlefield because he does have, in fact, possession of the crown and bracelet to, as proof that he was there. But uh, the presumption that most commentators make is that this guy has just made up this story and that uh, in the hopes that he might get some kind, that this would uh, give him some recognition before David. And uh, that just proves that whoever this Malachite was, he hadn't read First Samuel, because David has a way of dealing with people that slay other kings. And uh, as we'll find out shortly, uh, David isn't going to reward someone for doing something that David himself, on at least two occasions, passed. David wanted to kill Saul. He had plenty of opportunities. And uh, we know that you know, that was not David's uh, view of the matter. So this Amalekite, had, in a sense, hadn't done his homework. But anyway, verse 11, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and likewise all the men who were with him. Now this tearing the clothes, the rending of the clothes, is a classical way of mourning. We find that in Genesis 37 in a couple of verses, uh, 29 and 34. And it's, just, it's a classical way of lamenting, of, of showing grief. And uh, David is not gloating or overjoyed that Saul is dead. Quite the contrary, he's quite upset. Both Saul, but certainly Jonathan. Jonathan and David obviously uh, were very close. That must have been a real blow to learn of Jonathan's death, especially. So David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and likewise all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. Dark days. Dark days. Verse 13, David said to the young man who told him, From where art thou? He answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said unto him, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him so that he died. That takes care of that. David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth has testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. He killed the Amalekite, not because uh, of any other reason than uh, uh, the position. Um, I, I, I don't visualize David having, having any affection for Saul. He was afraid of him because he was dangerous. But he honored the position. Saul was the Lord's anointed. And uh, David honored that in his own opportunities that he had, and he certainly um, dealt with it appropriately here. Now, the Amalekite, if the story was fabricated, he made a giant mistake. Hmm? <laughs> but anyway, verse 17, now we have, we have this uh, song of the uh, bow, as it's called. Uh, David lamented, verse 17, uh, David lamented with his uh, lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son, and he ordered them to teach the children of Judah... Uh, the uh, uh, the song of the bow. It's a uh, juice of the bow is an addition in the English text 
Behold, it's written in the book of Jasher. That book is uh, also alluded to, strangely enough, in, uh, in Joshua chapter 10. We don't have a copy of it. We don't know much else about it. Verse 19. Thy glory, or, and this is, then there's a, there's, a, there's a song of the bow here. Thy glory, O Israel, is slain upon the high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there, is, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as though uh, he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. And the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. So David composes this, this eulogy. It's interesting that Jonathan was loyal to his father, Saul, without being disloyal. He was loyal to David without being disloyal to his father and, and, uh, uh, and died with him. And uh, so David laments through the song their death. Verse 25, How are the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee. My, uh, my, distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful. Passing the love of women, how the mighty are fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Special tribute to Jonathan. The last three verses. Uh, not much else to say. It's obviously uh, the relationship was uh, very special, very unique, and uh, David obviously is uh, uh, mourns the loss of his friend. Jonathan's an interesting position because he was loyal to David, deep affection. And yet he did not uh, violate the honor to his father. So uh, that, but this this uh, dismal beginning to Second Samuel really clears the deck now for David to accede to rulership. He's been anointed privately once. We read that before. He's going to have two more anointings in this book. First anointing will be when he takes over in chapter two as king of Judah, the southern tribes. Chapter two, verse one. It came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord. Notice that. We see that again and again. David, before he goes into battle, inquires of the Lord. He, he is, uh, he, he, in general, David does pretty well. He inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? He said unto Hebron. So David is following carefully the leading of the Lord here. He doesn't do it infallibly. He's going to make some big mistakes too. But it's interesting where his heart is. Verse 2, so David went up there, and his two wives also, Hinnom and the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite. We've encountered them both before. Um, and they're going up to Hebron. Hebron's about 20 miles south of Jerusalem, about 18 miles northeast of Ziklag, just to give you a, a rough feeling. Verse 3, and his men who were with him did David bring up, every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and uh, there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead, uh, uh, where they that buried uh, Saul. So uh, 
that, that's where he's getting briefed on what's going on here. A couple of uh, interesting re- reminders. Remember in First Samuel chapter 30, when David divided the spoil, do you remember what he did with some of it? He sent it to the leaders of Judah. It was a diplomatic thing. And that is paying off here because the men of Judah are the first to rally around David as king. And uh, he rules over them. They get, they, then they uh, uh, brief him on what hap- happened at Jabesh Gilead. And uh, verse 5, David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh Gilead and said unto them, Blessed be ye the Lord, that ye have showed this kindness unto your Lord, even unto Saul, and have buried him. Remember what they did now. The, the Saul was, was mounted as a trophy by the Philistines. And it was over. I mean, he's dead. It, uh, it's, it's a ceremonial thing in some respects. But the men of Jab- Jabesh Gilead risked their lives to go in there and get all that out of there and give them a proper burial. And uh, that's what David is uh, briefed on. Cause it, it, it says occasionally, verse 4, they buried Saul. But you've got to remember the conditions is that it was a, a major, major uh, uh, coup to get in there in the Philistine Center and, and uh, recover um, uh, the remains of Saul for a proper burial. So verse 6, And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you, and I will also requite you this kindness, because ye have done this thing. Therefore now let your hands be strengthened, and be ye valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. It's interesting to see David's consistent posture with respect to Saul. When he's alive, even though he's fleeing as a fugitive, he always spared Saul, wished him no evil. And even after his death, he hears that these guys have gone to some lengths to bury him properly. He, he commends them. You can tell that David has uh, got it together. But now we'll shift the scene from down south up north. Let's find out what's been going on in Israel, the northern tribes. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. We're going to hear shortly, next few chapters, a lot about Abner and Joab. Abner was the commander-in-chief, the general, if you will, in charge of Saul's armies, and, and, and subsequently there's a surviving son of Saul, Ishbosheth. By the way, his name originally was Eshbaal. We'll find that in, by the way, this whole area that we're studying here in 1 Samuel, 1 Chronicles... Uh, it's, it's a parallel to this, um, chapter uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, in that range, if you're, you're looking at parallel passages. But um, Ishbosheth's original name was Eshbaal, which means Baal lives. But that wasn't too politic now that, uh, that uh, so they changed it to Ishbosheth, and that's in First Chronicles 8:33 and 9:39. for those of you who want to chase that stuff down. And... Uh, so Abner is now a general without a king, because Saul is dead. So he has a, he finds he he, he uh, focuses on the surviving son of Saul, Ishbosheth, and um, encourages him to take uh, take the kingship of the northern tribes. And um, you'll discover as we go here that the real power behind Ishbosheth is Abner. And uh, the counter his counterpart under David is Joab. And shortly Abner and Joab are going to have at it a little bit as you'll see. And well, we'll get to that. But just as, as you introduce that, think of Abner as the general of the north and, and uh, Joab as David's general of the south. Um, in any case, verse 9, uh, Abner takes uh, uh, Ishbosheth in verse 9, and made him king over Gilead and over the Asherites and over Jezreel and over Ephraim and over Benjamin and over all Israel. That's Israel exclusive of Judah, if you follow 
Verse 10, uh, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel and reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, there's a discrepancy here that causes some confusion. It's not a big deal, but just so you're aware of it. David reigns over Judah seven years, actually seven and a half years, before he takes over the whole, the whole uh, nation. Ishbosheth reigns in the north only two years, and that doesn't reconcile. What it obviously points to is that Ishbosheth, this event didn't take place right away. There may, may have been some five years before that services. It's not clear, because there's two years up north and seven years down south and in at the same time. So you've got to deal with that one. <clears throat> because uh, David reigned se- uh, seven years and six months, we'll subsequently find that he reigned over the total nation 33 years, Israel and Judah, for a total reign of 40 and a half years. It's mentioned 40, but that's a round off, rounded off number. So uh, I suppose in a Jewish way you shrug and you say, it's 40 and a half, but who's counting, right? Okay. Well, when you got, uh, you got too many roosters in the hen house, you're going to have a civil war. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 12 on. <clears throat> Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the, the son of Saul, went out from Mahananim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David, they went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So here you got these two generals, you know, eyeing each other over. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then there arose and went over by number twelve of Benjamin for Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. So you got twenty-four contestants here, huh? And they caught every one his fellow by the head, and thrust a sword in the fellow's side, so they fell down together. All twenty-four, by the way. That's what you call a draw, huh? Bad pun, I'm sorry. Okay, so they fell. Yeah, I know. So they fell down together, therefore that place is called Helkath Hazarim, which is in Gibeon. It was a very severe battle that day, and Abner was beaten and the men of Israel before the servants of David. A couple of little background items. Um, this pool, uh, Gibeon, by the way, is seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. They've discovered this pool. It was about 37 feet in diameter and 35 feet deep. Then there's a staircase that goes down 45 feet further down. And um, there's actually below, uh, there's a vault below the, the pool. All 24 died, and this uh, place, which has got this long name, means the field of sword edges, understandably. So this doesn't end it. Joab and and Abner are are, uh, stalemated here, but verse 18, there were three sons of Zariah there, Joab and Abishai and and Asahel. Asahel, excuse me. And Asahel was as light of foot as a wild roe. So these are two brothers of Joab. Visualize what's going to go on here now. Asahel pursued after Abner, and in going he turned not to the right hand or the left from following Abner. See, Joab's brother is going to go after, he's anxious to knock off Abner. He's upset. 
Abner looked behind him and said, Art thou Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner says, Turn thee aside to the right hand or to the left, and lay thee hold on one of the young men, and take thee his armor. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn thee aside from following me. Why should I smite thee to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Joab thy brother? See, Abner's a professional military guy. He doesn't want to knock this kid off. But the kid's asking for it. You can almost, it's almost a typical Western scenario here, isn't it? Why does Abner not want to knock the kid off? That's right. He's worried about having a blood feud begin. It's not just the question of the kid and all that. He recognizes that that's the beginning of uh, something he doesn't want to be able to have, he doesn't have to finish. So, anyway, verse 23, albeit he refused to turn aside, wherefore Abner with the butt end of the spear smote him under the fifth rib so that the spear came out behind him. <laughs> Abner, anyway, uh, fell down, and he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died stood still. So, Pretty straightforward. Verse 24, Joab also and Abishai pursued after Abner. And the sun went down when they were come to the hill of Ammah, which lieth before Gaia by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together after Abner and became one troop and stood on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end? How long shall it be then before thou bid the people return from following their brethren? Joab said, As God liveth, unless thou hast spoken, surely then in the morning the people had gone up every one from following his brother. So Joab blew, uh, blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and pursued after Israel no more, neither fought they any more. And Abner and his men walked all that night through the Arabah and passed over the Jordan and went through Bithron until they came to Menahim. The Arabah being uh, that part that's uh, north of the Dead Sea. Some other notes here, but I guess uh, they, can't, they, they can't be important. <laughs> I misplaced them. All right. Um, uh, <clears throat> in verse uh, 30, And Joab returned from following Abner, and when he had gathered the people together, they, they, there lacked of David's servants 19 men and Asahel. The servants of David had smitten Benjamin and of Abner's men, so that three hundred and threescore men died. So Abner lost three hundred and sixty men, David lost nineteen. Kind of impressive. Verse 32, And they took up Asahel and buried him in the sepulcher of his father, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at the break of day. It's interesting. Abner tried to avoid the thing. Twice he tried to get the young guy not to follow through and because, because he could tell what was coming for it. It's also interesting that it was Abner's initiative that got things settled down. But we're not through. It's going to... Joab's going to have the last word with Abner here in the next chapter. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And to David were sons born in Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon of Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, the second, uh, Kaliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. 
And the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Tamal, the king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, uh, Sheftiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithraim by uh, Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. This is a list of the sons in Hebron. And uh, when we get to um, chapter 5, we're going to discover, well, a list of the sons he has in Jerusalem later. So there's lots of sons. One of the things you notice here is not just the list of sons. It seems to be accumulating a lot of wives. And that's a violation of uh, Deuteronomy uh, 7.3 and 17.17. Wasn't supposed to do that. It was the custom of the time. Uh, It sounds like he's picking up quite a household. Most of these tend to derive from treaties was customary when uh, an alliance was made and a treaty was signed that was often uh, cemented or sealed or, or made sure by the giving of a daughter to the other king uh, for, to wife. That was a way of um, binding the, uh, the, uh, the treaty. Uh, now, by the way, the covenants with foreign nations was also forbidden. You'll find that in Exodus 23.32, Exodus 34.12, Deuteronomy 7.12. So David, by complying to the custom of the time, is in fact violating the Torah. So that ain't good. Now, um, what does all this reap? Well, if you're a student of the Old Testament, several of these names, uh, Adonijah and Absalom, are going to come up again. So we'll learn more about that. Uh, the uh, the uh, that one wife Mecha the daughter of Tamai the uh, king of Geshur Geshur was northeast um, of the Galilee and uh, that implies a treaty with a king of Geshur which would be um, shrewd on David's part from a secular point of view because that would put uh, Ishbosheth sandwiched between. Because the, the Geshur was north of Ishbosheth, so Ishbosheth thus would be surrounded if David, in fact, by taking her uh, this daughter to wife, uh, created an ally north of Ishbosheth. Now, that's uh, uh, I don't think the Lord needed any help to secure David's throne, but from David's point of view, that may have, it's possible that, that may have been part of the motivation, because it puts Ishbosheth in a very precarious position. But anyway, here we have the uh, the six sons that were born in Hebron, and there'll be more in uh, in Jerusalem. Okay. Now we're going to hear more of this guy, Abner. Remember now, Abner is the general of the northern kingdom, the rival house, if you will. Verse 6, it came to pass while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. In other words, Abner is the real muscle behind the throne up north. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rispa, the daughter of Aiah and Ishbosheth, said to Abner, why hast thou gone in unto my father's concubine? This was a serious issue. It's not just a question of, of the sex aspect to it. It was implies, see, a concubine was a slave woman that was chattel, that was owned by the throne. And uh, for him to have done that, if he did do it, we don't know whether he did or didn't because uh, he's just simply being accused of it here, it would imply a challenge to the throne itself. So there's, there's, a, there's a political dimension to this as well as a, uh, the obvious. 
Verse 8, Then was Abner very angry for the words of Ishbosheth, and said, Am I a dog's head who against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul, thy father, to his brethren, and to his friends, and have not delivered thee into the hand of David? that Thou chargest me today with a fault concerning this woman? So do God to Abner and more also, except as the Lord hath sworn to David, even so I do to him. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. So Abner is really upset and he vows to transfer the power to David. In other words, that's, uh, that's uh, his response. He's not going to get a chance to fulfill that. But he clearly sets the machinery in motion to cause that to follow through even after Abner's death because Joab is going to ambush Abner. But Abner is on the, on the, on the move here uh, as, as the real power behind the throne of the north to, uh, to shift that allegiance, that, that to following that constituency down south to David because he's had it with Ishbosheth. Verse 11. And he could not answer Abner a word because he feared them. Here's the king. Ishbosheth's the king. But he didn't dare answer his general because he was afraid of him. Here's this general just sworn he's going to take the allegiance and move it down south. Ishbosheth might assume he's just upset, but he certainly doesn't respond because uh, you don't mess around with Abner. Huh? Verse 12, and Abner sent messages to David on his behalf, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make thy league with me, and behold, my hand shall be with thee to bring about all Israel unto thee. See, when he says he wants to, he's going to have David rule over Israel and Judah from Dan even to Beersheba, Dan here is used idiomatically of the northern border and Beersheba down to the south. So from Dan to Beersheba is like saying from Maine to California or something, so to speak. Um, in other words, the, the, it embraces the whole land. Verse 13, he said, well, I will make a league with thee, as David's speaking, but one thing I require of thee, he's got a condition. That is, that thou shalt not see my face, except thou first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when thou comest to see my face. Remember, Michael was promised to David by King Saul, but Saul, to show who his boss, gave her to another man as husband. And that's a bone in David's throat, so to speak. So David's condition to receive Abner is that Michael be brought down. Now, is this, a, is this an affection thing? I don't know. Is it a political face-saving thing? You can draw your own conclusions. But in any case, that's David's condition. That doesn't go over very well with Michael's present husband, by the way. But um, Verse 14, And David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Deliver me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. I behaved myself so well when we're going through that foreskin store. I won't mess up my record now. We'll keep moving. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, even from uh, Paltiel, the son of Elish. And her husband went with her, weeping behind her to Bahruim. Bahu, you know, anyway, whatever it is. And um, then said Abner down to him, Go, return, and he returned. When Abner tells you to do something, you do it, I guess. And Abner had communication with the elders of Israel, saying, Ye sought for David in times past to be a king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord hath spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. See, Abner starts the PR campaign, public relations campaign. 
talking to the uh, secondary leadership in Israel to come over to David's side. Verse 19, And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin, and Abner went also to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel, and it seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner came to David, to Hebron, and twenty men with him. And David made Abner and the men who were with him a feast. And Abner said unto David, I will arise and go, and will gather all Israel unto my lord the king, that they may make a league with thee, and that thou mayest reign over all thine heart desireth. And David went, sent Abner away, and he went in in peace. So Abner's making good. He's going to turn over the power to David. But that leaves a little bit of a problem. Who's the commander-in-chief of the military under David? Joab. And Abner is de- leading from strength here, isn't he? Not expressed, but it's implied that Abner's going to get some position here. That's not going to sit very well with Joab. So Joab's got, you've got two rivals. You've got, well, two roosters in the hen house, so to speak. So that's unstable. Verse 22, And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from pursuing a troop and brought in a great spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away. He was gone in peace. When Joab and all the host that was with them were come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of... Now, see, by the way, Joab was not present when David had this dialogue with Abner. And so Joab's going to get the second hand. They told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he hath sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What hast thou done? Behold, Abner came unto thee. Why is it that thou sent him away? And he is quite gone. Thou knowest, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive thee, and to know thy going out and thy coming in, and to know all that thou doest. When Joab was come out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him again from the well of uh, Syrah. But David knew it not. Hard to measure, Job. Was he sincere? He might have been. He's a military guy. He's trained to be a paranoid. Abner has been the adversary. Well, sure. He's, Abner was the adversary. And he hears that Abner's down here. Um, he's, he suspects the worst, that Abner's really dece- being deceptive and, and just trying to find out the lay of the land to, for his own advantage. That's possible. So Job could be quite sincere, wrong, but quite sincere in his, in his outlook. Or it could be that he's just out to get Abner for a couple of reasons. He's a potential rival, very powerful rival, to his own position. And also he hasn't forgotten that Abner murdered his brother. So there's tension between these two guys that Joab uh, resolves quite quickly. Verse 27, when Abner was... So he ambushes Abner. He calls Abner back. Abner thinks it's from David. When Abner was returned to Hebron... Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly and smote him there under the fifth rib so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. And afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever from the blood of Abner and the son of Ner. Let it rest upon the head of Joab and all his father's house and let there never cease from the house of Joab one who hath an issue or who is a leper or who leaneth on a staff or falleth on the sword who lacketh bread. (laughs) David's upset. So Joab and Abishai's brother slew Abner because he had slain their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. And David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and gird you with sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And the king David himself followed the bier. And they buried Abner in Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool dieth, 
Thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falleth before a wicked man, so fellest thou. And all the people wept again over him. And when all the people came to cause David to eat food, while it was yet day, David swore, saying, So do God to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else, till the sun be down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. As whatsoever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it was not the, of the king to slay Abner the son of Ner. The king said unto his servants, Know ye not that there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel? And I am this day weak, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zariah, were too hard for me. The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. That makes a lot of points with Joab, I imagine. But uh, it's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's interesting how, how David um, focuses very quickly on the guilt or innocence, and he also makes it clear that he's not identified with this act of Joab, which the people would normally assume because Joab is his right hand. They might presume that he was doing something that, uh, that uh, the king wanted to, to have done. And uh, one other thing that's kind of interesting, uh, just to test your memory, what makes Hebron unique? It's one of six cities that are labeled as city of refuge, right? And so uh, I'm not sure it fits here because, uh, Joab, we can't call this manslaughter. It sounds like it was pretty well planned. But, um, but certainly David demonstrates his sorrow by renting his clothes, lamenting, and... and uh, and uh, fasting until sunset. Uh, you may say it doesn't sound like much, but it's ceremonial. It demonstrates to the people that, that uh, he grieves over the death of Abner. Well, the bloodshed continues. Let's go on to chapter 4. And when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble. Actually, his hands dropped in the Hebrew. I get the impression that Ishbosheth wasn't too strong a guy anyway. And we discovers that his powerful general has just been killed. He's got to be rattled. And uh, all the Israelites were troubled. Verse one, verse two. And Ishbosheth Saul's son had two men who were captains of bands, in other words, uh, uh, regiments or or uh, troops. The name of one was uh, Bana, and the name of the other uh, Rechab the sons of Rimon, the Berothite, of the children of Benjamin. For Beroth was reckoned unto Benjamin. What that means was that this particular town they're both from was not originally allocated to Benjamin, but was abandoned. And uh, then the Benjamites just took it over. So it's regarded as if it was part of Benjamin. That's why it was reckoned to Benjamin, but it wasn't originally allocated. You'll discover that the original lots and the original lands were adjusted by various circumstances subsequent to the book of Joshua and uh, this is one of them. And these two, these two guys are brothers. Um, and uh, they're going to uh, take matters in their hands. Verse 3. Berthites fled to Gitaim and were sojourners there until this day. And Jonathan Saul's son had a son who was lame in his feet. This man, Fishabeth, he's a, he's a cripple. He's one of the survivors under Jonathan. And this is setting. This is going to set the stage. What comes? What happens in in Second uh, Samuel chapter nine? He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. 
the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, and Rechab, the, and uh, Baanah, uh, went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. So he's taking a siesta here. Huh? And they came, they came there into the midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat. In other words, they're acting as servants here. Hmm? And they smote him under the fifth rib, and Rechab and Benahiah's brother escaped. So they sneak in the house acting as servants, and they kill the king. Verse 7, when they came into the house, he lay on his feet in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him and took his head and went away through the Arabah all night. Arabah, again, is this desolate area that uh, gives them safe passage. Verse 8, and he brought the head of Ishbosheth to David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, who sought thy life. And the Lord hath avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and of his seed. <laughs> David answered Rechab and Benach, his brother, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity? When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought I would have given him a reward for his tidings. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in, in his own house upon his bed? Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they slew them, cut off their hands and their feet, and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. These guys don't do their homework. What is this, the third time that someone's claimed a prize and paid with his life? David... Uh, should be getting the message out. You don't mess around with kings. It's interesting that he calls Ishbosheth a righteous person. He doesn't blame Ishbosheth for taking the king uh, kingdom. He knew Abner had talked him into it, and he was the uh, offspring of Saul. So, from that frame of reference, Ishbosheth didn't do anything wrong as far as David. He calls him here a righteous man. And uh, it's interesting how David sets this principle that uh, you don't presume to kill kings. Interesting. Okay. Bloody stuff. But of course it leads to the third anointing in chapter 5. Then came all the tribes of Israel unto Hebron to speak to David and spoke, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. And time passed when Saul was king over us. Thou wast he who lettest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. This is the third anointing. first one was in First Samuel 16, 13, private. The other one in chapter 2, verse 4, which we read, which is over the southern kingdom. Now he's got the third anointing, which gives him the opportunity to create a, a, a nation. He's got a few things he's going to clear the deck for and then build his empire. But in any case, this is in verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And this is where he shifts to make Jerusalem. He's got one thing he's got to do, and that's get rid of this wedge. The Jebus, uh, Jebusites had a fortress 
part of Jerusalem, and that's a problem, so he's going to fix that. Verse 6, The king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in here, thinking David cannot come in here. In other words, they thought they were um, uh, impregnable. The, uh, the city had deep, deep valleys on three sides, and they regarded themselves as, as being impregnable. And um, the, um, um, David proves that that ain't so. Verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The same is the city of David. What they did is they went through the, they were, the, the... The city was favored because it was on trade routes. It also had these three ravines on three sides, but it also had its own supply of water, the Gihon Spring. And what David did and his men, they slipped through the tunnel that the spring fed the city with and used that as their entrance. And uh, they uh, conquered the, 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 the Jebusite uh, city. Jebusites came from uh, Canaanite descent. You find them in Genesis 10, verses 16 through 18, if you want to back into that, all of that. So that's, the, that's when Jerusalem becomes the capital. Verse 8, David said on this day, Whosoever getteth up the water shaft and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind, who are the hated of David's soul, he shall be the chief and the captain. Therefore, they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into thine house. So David dwelt in the fort, called it the city of David. David built round about from Millo and inward. What that means is David recognized that the weakness of their defense was to the north, and so Millo means mound, by the way. And uh, so he fortifies the weak side, the north side. Having, caught, having conquered the place, he strengthens it on the north side. David went on and grew great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. Just a brief mention, you find the same thing in First Chronicles 11, where David takes over Jerusalem. It's, this is where Jerusalem begins its role as the capital of the nation. Jerusalem. You start that study, you start in Genesis 14, well, Melchizedek, king of Salem, generally regarded as the same place. So it technically gets introduced in, in the early chapters of Genesis, but here in Second Samuel is where it takes a role of being uh, 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 its destiny to be, the, to be viewed as God's city. Verse 11, And Hiram the king of Tyre sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house. David uh, the, 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 doesn't lose any time getting international recognition. Hiram's the king of Tyre, and Hiram really jumps on this quickly to recognize David and do him favors. And he becomes a friend of David, in fact, provides a great deal of the resources that will ultimately be the, uh, uh, become the temple. Now, he has a lot of reasons for doing this. Uh, he wants to trade, and he also needs Israel's grain. So there's, there's trade reasons to, for hire. This is not a you know, one-way deal. It's a two-way street. 1 Kings 5 and uh, Acts 12.20 make reference to all of this. So we see Hiram, who's very resourceful. He sends cedar trees, carpenters, masons, and they build David a neat house. David will later get concerned and uh, be concerned about the Lord's house, and he'll want to build a temple. And we'll find out shortly that God won't let him do that. David's attitude is, no problem, I can prepay the bills. So most of the materials and stuff for the temple, the plans and so forth, David dealt with. His son Solomon built it, but uh, David anticipated a lot of that uh, by his relationship with Hiram and, else, and, and otherwise. So we'll see that all unfold here shortly. David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people's, Israel's sake. 
So David has no delusions. He knows that this is the Lord's doing, and the Lord's doing it for his people's sake. Verse 13, And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem, for he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. And these are the names of those who were born unto him in Jerusalem. Uh, Shemua and Shobab and Nathan and Solomon and uh, Ibhar also and Elishua and Nepheg and Japhia and Elishama and Eliada and Eliphalet. Now the writer here is anticipating. Some of this hasn't happened yet. It's just taking the occasion here to summarize those sons of David that were born in Jerusalem in contrast to the previous list from Hebron. Because Solomon gets born to whom? Bathsheba. And that comes up a little, a few more chapters away. So uh, that's part of his downfall. In the first ten chapters of Samuel were on the rise, and it's an upbeat thing. We've seen David uh, do pretty well so far. Now he's going to, he's got, he's, he's taking care of the Jebusites. His next major problem is to neutralize the Philistines. They've been their nemesis all along. So David is, uh, uh, now that he's king of the, the whole bit, is going to um, um, deal with this. And the Philistines are going to attack twice the same way, and, uh, they get, uh, and, and, and David handles it skillfully. Chapter 17, I mean verse 17, And when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David, and David heard of it. It went down to the stronghold, that is down to Jerusalem, the, 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 the citadel. And the Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. This is the direct route to Jerusalem. They're coming, they're upset. They, they, see, they regarded David as their vassal. And now not only has he, he uh, slipped away on them, he's now taken the leadership of their main adversary. So they're after him. Verse 19, David inquired of the Lord. See again, David's first step is to do what? Find out what the Lord wants him to do. Interesting example he sets here. Shall I go up to the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? The Lord said unto David, Go up, and I will certainly deliver the Philistines into thine hand. David came to Baal-perazim, and David smote them there, and said, The Lord hath broken forth upon thine enemies before me as the surging of the waters. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. Baal-perazim means the the um, Lord of the breaking through. The imagery is sort of like a dam breaking. And that speaks to apparently the tactics and so forth that David was uh, successful with against the Philistines there. In any case, he, 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 uh, he, uh, he won and they left their images, their idols. It was customary in those tribes to carry their, their idols with them in the battle. So when they, when they conquered, the, when they won the battle, they took the idols and burned them. And... Uh, same thing shows up in First Chronicles 14 and so on. Verse 22, And the Philistines came up yet again. Here's a second onslaught. And uh, came up yet again, spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Again, they're taking this valley. See, they're, they're leaning heavily on chariots, so they need a certain kind of terrain to give them an advantage there. But this time, David surprises them. He goes in from behind and uses, changes his tactics totally and beats them again. Verse 23, When David inquired of the Lord, he said, Thou shalt not go up, but make a circuit behind them and come up upon them over and against the mulberry trees. And let be when thou hearest the sound of the marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt bestir thyself, and then shall the Lord go out from before thee and smite the host of the Philistines. And David did so, and the Lord commanded him and smote the Philistines from Geba until thou comest to Gezir. So, once again, they're subdued. And um, 
by the surprise attack from behind. And this takes care, at least uh, substantially, of the Philistines. This, gives, this clears the deck for David to take his fledgling country and make it into an empire. And uh, we're going to find out subsequently he's going to uh, expand the empire north and south, east and west, from the river of Egypt, Uari al-Arish, all the way to the Euphrates. Uh, he's going to successfully uh, establish the empire. He will do it militarily. Solomon, his son, will take it on and expand it commercially. But now in chapter uh, 6, we're going to have an example of where his heart's in the right place, but he had zeal without knowledge. David's going to do the right thing the wrong way. And uh, we can learn from this. Very famous event, chapter 6, verse 1. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel. 30,000. That's a lot of chosen men. Imagine 30,000. That's a sizable troop, huh? That's uh, six Roman legions. It's a lot of... I mean, they just don't want to skim over that. That's, that's a powerful envoy, huh? Verse 2, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from there. Now, by the way, that's a name you don't recognize. It's the same thing as uh, Kiriath-Jerim. It's another name for it. To bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who dwelleth between the cherubim. There's two, the, the word name here implies reputation, and the word sitteth is in the Hebrew implies the presence. So here we have the, the presence of God, and, and, uh, and uh, as it's described here, his name is called by the name of the Lord, and who, who dwelleth between the cherubim. So he's viewed as dwelling, uh, he's literally dwelling in the chari- between the cherubim in heaven, but also symbolically uh, the cherubim on the, on the uh, mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Now this is where, verse 3 is where they blow it. They set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. So they're doing a Jewish thing in a Philistine way. Remember how the Philistines moved the ark? They weren't accountable to the Torah, a little different situation. But um, how was the ark instructed to be carried? On poles by the sons of Kohath. A specific one of the three sons of, uh, of the Levites. Remember, the Levites had three camps, right? The Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Marathites. And uh, so the Koh- sons of Kohath were supposed to carry the ark on their shoulders. That's expressly provided for in Exodus 25, verses 14 and 15, Numbers 3, verses 30 and 31. And number seven, verse nine, all make reference to the specific instructions that God um, had laid down for the handling of the ark. He's very, very particular about it. There's a second mistake that occurs, perhaps unavoidable in a sense, and yet a mistake. Only the Levites, under special occasions, were to touch the ark. And so uh, we have Abinadab has his... uh, there's uh, two sons here driving the cart, huh? And the cart hits a rock and starts to jostle, and the ark starts to fall off. What would you do? Put your hand up to steady it, wouldn't you? 
<laughs> Not at all, huh? You don't think so, though? <laughs> you read ahead, I see. Verse 4, And they brought it out of the house of Benadab, which was it gave it, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the uh, Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and psalteries and timbrels and cornets and, and, and on cymbals. And when they came to uh, Nacon's thrashing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and he there he died by the ark of God. Heavy stuff. David was displeased because the Lord had broken forth in anger against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him uh, into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So David realizes he's in trouble. He hasn't followed directions. David blames himself, in effect, for Uzzah's death. Was David wrong in wanting to bring the ark up to Jerusalem? I don't think so. I don't see any reason why that would be. But he didn't follow the directions. And uh, the more we read about uh, God's word, the more we realize that God is very particular about specific things. And, the, it, uh, and uh, does that apply to you and I? Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. A little different basis than the Torah, but still it's a call to obedience. This whole thing, um, oh, by the way, I forgot to give another reference. Uh, you don't touch the ark, that's Numbers 14, uh, 415, if you want to annotate uh, the reference there. Example of situation ethics, isn't it? The situation didn't justify the violation of God's specific instructions. Hmm? Verse 12, And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of uh, Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was that when they, they who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. He's trying to cover his bets here. huh? It's interesting that they bore the ark. I, I infer from all of this, they, they, they went ahead and took a look at the Torah, and read up on how they're supposed to do this thing. Verse 14, And David danced, or actually, the word in Hebrew means whirling around, but anyway, he's celebrating the bringing of the ark. And he danced before the Lord with all his might. I have a hard time visualizing. Here's, here's a macho military guy, the leader of the, the people, dancing with all his might. That's a... And David was girded with a linen ephod. That was a sleeveless garment that uh, went a little below the waist, the waist that the, uh, the priests wore when they were officiating. And so David and all, his, uh, all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked out of a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. 
and she despised him in her heart. She was Saul's daughter. She understood the ceremonial effects of being king, being reserved, being ceremonially self-conscious of your position. And we sense more and more that David was a man of the people, composed poems, minister of music, mixed with his men. He was, he was a man of the street, in a sense. Grew up as a shepherd boy, different kind of guy. And to David, this was natural to celebrate the ark coming to Jerusalem. It was a climax. It was something that uh, was uh, uh, long hoped for. But uh, Michael doesn't see it that way. She, from this point on, is really despises David, sees him as, I imagine the term we might use as uncouth. Huh? She ain't got, he ain't got no couth. Is that the way it works? Anyway, whatever. So she despised David in her heart. Verse 17. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it upon it in its place inside the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. David offered the burnt offerings and the peace offerings before the Lord. Now it says David had pitched for it. I assume he gave the instructions and the Levites did it according to the rules, but David ordered it at the point. And as soon as David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, and he distributed among the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women as men, to everyone, a cake of bread and a portion of meat and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. David knew how to throw a party, didn't he? I mean, that's a lot of people. Everybody got provisions. Verse 20. When David returned to bless his household, uh, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servant, as one of the worthless fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. She gets the sarcasm of the year award. She's, uh, she's obviously uh, disdains the, the, the commonality of David's uh, celebration here. Verse 21, David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me before thy father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. Who is David dancing before? The people? No. Before God. And her sarcasm is met with David's pointing out that he was chosen over her, her father. So that's, uh, he, gets, he gets his lick in. Verse 22, And I will yet be more contemptible than this. And am willing to be base in mine own sight, and of the maidservants whom thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. So that uh, gives you some insight into that relationship. Um, and it's probably pretty tough stuff because you've got a lot of competition. There's quite, a, there's quite an entourage growing here. But on the other side of the coin, recognize the soundness of this. What complications would occur if there had been offspring from Michael that would have been heirs of Saul? Can you, can, you, can you visualize the, the other dimensions that, that, that this could have introduced had there been offspring from Michael? Because on the one hand, the offspring would be of the house of David, but it would also be of the house of Saul. So it creates complications. In any case... Uh, that's uh, that's it. Sarcasm doesn't pay, does it, girls? Huh? Okay. Chapter 7, verse 1. This is an important chapter. This is a dandy. And uh, 
you know, it's a, as we try to pace our, our, our sweep through these uh, historical books, uh, much of it is so straightforward, it doesn't really require a lot of comment, yet there's certain places that are very critical, and chapter 7 is one of them. So we'll take our time and go through this carefully. Chapter 7, verse 1, It came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. See, David feels self-conscious uh, because with Hiram's help, he's got this elaborate palace. He lives in a, a very plush environment. He looks out there and sees the ark of God still in this temporary tabernacle. Very appropriate for the wilderness wanderings. When Moses came down from Sinai and, and God had given him the instructions to build this thing, Moses apparently had been given a glimpse of heaven and because he saw the patterns of what he was supposed to do before he came down. And... Um, and it was all designed to be portable, very appropriate for the wilderness wanderings. The poles and the boards and the the whole tabernacle thing. But see, now they're settled in the land. They've conquered the land. They've established the monarchy. They've got a permanent capital. It's very understandable that David would aspire, now that we've gotten this far, let's build the Lord a house. The Lord hadn't asked him to, did he? But in any case, David's heart's in the right place. He says to Nathan... Uh, that uh, I dwell in the house of cedar, the ark of God dwelleth in the curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. That was a little premature, Nathan, because that seemed reasonable to Nathan, because certainly it's a high point. There's been a big celebration. They're all feeling pretty good about the way things are going. And so Nathan responds very understandably, but he, did, he made a mistake, didn't he? He didn't ask the Lord how he felt about all this, which he will shortly. Verse 4 came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house, uh, to, uh, build a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places in which I have walked with the children of Israel, spoke I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people, Israel, saying, Why build ye not, uh, build not me a house uh, in, uh, of cedar? No, words, God saying, Did I ask you? Verse 8, Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from a sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. And I was with thee wherever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men who are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more, as formerly. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. God is saying, David, you can't build me a house, but I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you a house. And there's a pun involved. He doesn't mean a house of timber and stone. He means a, a dynasty. So we're going to get into this area that we call the Davidic Covenant. 
God is going to make a promise to David. That promise is very, very important. And there are at least four key covenants that you want to study as a student of God's Word. But this is one of them. We'll review the other shortly. God says, The Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. Verse 12, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thine own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee, and thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Quite a covenant couple of things. What were the conditions that had to be met for God to keep this promise? None. That's very important for you to recognize that this is an unconditional commitment. Nothing that they could do could blow it. If they sin, and they will, they'll get chastened. But it doesn't curtail the commitment God made for an eternal house, an eternal throne, and an eternal kingdom. Three different dimensions. It might be useful, since we're doing really well here time-wise. That's good. Let's turn, let's take a look at the key covenants. Let's take a quick look at the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12. <coughs> to give you a little context, we have the sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. They leave the boat, they set up the tribes. We have Genesis 10, which describes all their offspring, the table of nations. And we have a guy by the name of Nimrod, by the name of Nimrod found several cities, including Nineveh and Babylon and a lot of others. And he leads a rebellion against God. He founds a city called Babel, builds a tower in rebellion of God. And we have the confusion of tongues in chapter 11, chapter 11 of Genesis. Nimrod's idea was to make man's name great. God's plan is different. He was going to make one man's name great. So he deals with Babel in chapter 11, and chapter 12 opens with his commitment, his covenant with a guy by the name of Abraham. God reaches out and picks a idol-worshiping Gentile and makes him the father of many nations. It's very interesting how uh, the the city of Babel becomes Babylon and is used throughout the Bible to symbolize the city of man, the symbol of Satan, the city of Satan. Chapter 14 of Genesis will have introduced Jerusalem. And all through the scripture, these two cities are used antiphonally or antithetically. Babylon, sometimes used by God to judge Israel, fine, but always idol-worshipping, paganistic, the source of the occult, the source of all things that are 
at the other end of the spectrum as far as God is concerned. Jerusalem, with all its faults, is used symbolically or spiritually as God's city. And this happens all the way through the Scripture and climaxes in the book of Revelation. When the city of Babylon, which is by then risen to power, gets judged by God, and the city of Jerusalem gets replaced or presented, uh, represented, so to speak, as the new Jerusalem. I'm speaking idiomatically now uh, between the two. Tale of two cities is another way of looking at it. Chapter 12 of Genesis is after this whole business with with, uh, Babel and all that. We have three verses that are very important. You should know them. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and of the, from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And verse 3 is very important. And I will bless them that bless thee. And curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Not just the Arabs and the Jews. All, which both which descend from Abraham. But all families of the earth will be blessed. What were the conditions Abraham had to fulfill? Unconditional promise. And it involves three things. The land, the nation, and the blessing. All three. Incidentally, um, you'll notice a key word here, the word had. Now the Lord had said. He didn't say it here. He told Abraham, "Get the other, leave your family and go where I'm telling you. Abraham didn't do that. He left her the Chaldees and just moved up river to Haran until his father died. Then he performs. But that lapse of faith, that failure to commit is not expressly put here. You really have to dig that out of Acts 7, Stephen's analysis and the rest of it. By the way, Abraham's father's name is Terah. Do you know what Terah means? Delay. Delay. So that's what, but we shouldn't be too hard on Abraham. That's what we all do. God calls us into place, and what do we do? We move up river a little bit. Okay? The Lord had said to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house. See, verse 32 of chapter 11 says, The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. They lived in Haran until his father died. That cleared the deck, and then they moved on. In any case, but this is the Abrahamic covenant. Chapter 12, verse 3, verses, very, very important. Uh, Okay, now, the next covenant that's important, we've got three things in the Abrahamic covenant, the land, the nation, and uh, a blessing. Let's let's look at what's called the Palestinian covenant. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. All these things can pass. It's actually the first ten verses, but we'll pick it up about um, verse 3. Then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations where the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. So the regathering, huh? Interesting. When was the first time they were regathered? No, the first time they were gathered. After the Babylonian captivity, remember they were slaves in Babylon, they were going to go and be slaves as a nation, they were 
enslaved for 70 years. Jeremiah predicted 70 years. Daniel, who was deported as a teenager, recognized the 70 years were almost up finally in his life. So he went to prayer in Daniel 9, and Gabriel gave him a very special briefing. But the point is, they were freed then 70 days to the day. 70, excuse me, 70 years to the day. And they were allowed to go back. How many nations did they return from when they went back to Jerusalem? One, from Babylon. This regathering is from how many nations? All the nations. When has that been going on? From 1948 on. If If any of thine be driven into the uttermost parts of heaven, there shall there will the Lord thy God gather thee from there, he will fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all that thou mayest live. And the Lord will put all these curses upon thine enemies and to them that hate thee, who persecuted thee, and on he goes. First ten verses, Deuteronomy chapter 30, the Palestinian covenant. The covenant having to do with the land. The Davidic covenant, we've just reached in, in 2 Samuel 7. We've looked at that. Let's just take a glimpse ahead, just to, actually by way of review from our study in Jeremiah. The new covenant, as it's called. Jeremiah 31. Hmm? Jeremiah 31. We'll pick it up by verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. I need you to remember. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand out to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law into their inward parts and write it upon their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Three covenants. Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenant. In the Abrahamic Covenant, we had three issues. The land, the nation, and the blessing. The Palestinian Covenant was the land. The Davidic Covenant had to do with the nation. And the New Covenant with the blessing. So that's just a quick review. I encourage you to... Master, you know, study those and get in behind them and really understand that. Very critical milestones in the Old Testament uh, uh, narrative. Now, in the Davidic covenant, there's a few other things that we should highlight. The promises that God gives David through Nathan includes, first of all, a son and a successor to the throne. And that son is Solomon, who builds the temple, obviously Predicted and also fulfilled. But he also says that the throne shall be forever. That does not say it's going to be uninterrupted. Who sits on David's throne today? No, not yet. The book of Revelation consists of things that are out of place. The church is on earth, belongs in heaven. Israel's out of the land, belongs in the land, right? And, they, and, and Jesus is sitting on his father's throne. What is he yet to inherit? His own. Not ready yet. There's only one 
heir, that's a man, and heir to David's throne. Who is it? Jesus Christ. And the establishment of that throne is what Revelation chapters 4 through 19 is all about. And that's what chapter 21 and 22 deals with. That throne, that kingdom, that dynasty is forever. Um, We should, I think, take a look at, hold your place here, We'll try to return and get David's prayer, but I think it's important at this point. Let's turn to Luke chapter 1. We're getting on the Christmas season. Let's, let's take a look and realize how Jewish Christmas, Christmas really is. <laughs> Luke chapter 1. verse 29 on, we have Mary visited by Gabriel. This is the same guy that gave Daniel his famous 70 weeks vision in chapter 9. Every time Gabriel shows up, it always seems to have something to do with the Messiah. Every time Michael shows up, the archangel, it has to do with war on behalf of Israel. He's apparently the, the, he's the, he's the captain of the host, so to speak. But um, not to be confused with Joshua 5, I shouldn't use that expression. But in any case, uh, Michael is the, war, the warrior. Gabriel is the messenger about the Messiah. Every time he shows up, he brings a message having to do with the Messiah. And he, here he visits Mary in the famous Annunciation. And uh, we get down to verse 30. The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. You all are familiar with the story. We celebrate every Christmas. But notice verses 32 and 33 and read them carefully. This is Luke who is a Gentile. This is an enunciation in the New Testament. Notice how Jewish it is. Verse 32, speaking of Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. No problem so far, right? And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Nothing allegorical about that. It's very specific. Did his father David's throne exist at the time that Gabriel was speaking to Mary? No, absolutely not. In fact, it, uh, well, I won't get that right now. It would be a whole distraction. He is destined to inherit the throne of his father David. Remember Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Notice both, a child and a son. Two issues. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Right. And of the increase of his government there shall be no end. Right. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his... The government going to be on his shoulder? Has it been? It will be. is isn't yet. Okay, that's verse 32. That's good. One more verse, 33. Luke 1, 33. Gabriel continues to Mary and says, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. That's, uh, he's using the idiom of Jacob. All 12 sons were born to Jacob. That means all 12 tribes. He is going to rule a Jewish dynasty. Or a, a kingdom. 
And for how long? Yeah, that's what Handel wrote. Didn't he? And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Interesting promise to Mary. Why am I badgering this? Because there are people in the church today that are writing books and trying to sell a heresy that Israel really isn't Israel and that the, the rule of the earth is the destiny of the church. Wrong. God made it very clear what the future of the church is going to be in the letter, seven letters, seven churches, and elsewhere. The Jewishness of the commitments God has made to Israel and to Jesus Christ need to be very, very visible as we study the Scripture. We need to understand the role of Israel, and particularly the role of Israel in contradistinction to the role of the church. I personally believe, doesn't mean it's right, you challenge it yourself, but I personally believe that God's de corporate dealing with the church and with Israel are mutually exclusive. The door, the door to the church was not open until Israel had rejected the kingdom, and we had Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The rapture is the reversal of that, so to speak. It closes that peculiar period. It's lasted, yes, 2,000 years, but a very peculiar period. And I personally believe that the 70th week of Daniel deals where, where, Israel, where God once again, in a corporate sense, focuses on Israel. And that can't happen until the Antichrist signs a treaty. The Antichrist can't sign a treaty until he's revealed. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul makes it very clear that he cannot be revealed until after the rapture. That's the sequence. So it's not a question of pre-trib, post-trib, or any of that. It says that the rapture occurs prior to the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, the last half of that seven-year period being the Great Tribulation. doesn't mean there won't be troubles beforehand, but it's not uh, the Great Tribulation as specifically defined in the Scripture. Very important ideas. But the world will not be subjected into the control of God until the Messiah takes charge. Now today... Paul divide, Paul and John divide all people into one of three categories. Jew, Gentile, or church. If a Jew becomes a member of the church, he's a member of the church. There's Jew, Gentile, church. Three categories Paul talks about. Okay. Um, we can make, let's pop back to Second Samuel and finish the chapter. Whenever you get a Christmas card, Isaiah 9-6, rejoice. Whenever you see this, as you go through the Christmas celebration and see, celebrate the Annunciation of Mary, don't lose sight of the Jewishness of all of that. Okay, uh, chapter 7, verse 18, Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that thou hast brought me thus far? And yet was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, that thou hast spoken also of thy servant's uh, house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, and there is none like thee. Neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make him a name and to do for you great things and awe-inspiring for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever. 
and thou, Lord, art become their God. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning this house, establish it forever and do as thou hast said. And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee a house. Therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. And now, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words are true. And thou hast promised his goodness unto thy servant. Therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, Lord God, hast spoken it, and with thy blessing let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. David's prayer in response to Nathan's message. David overwhelmed. And uh, prayer of thanksgiving. Chapter 8, next time we'll deal with David's military expansion of the kingdom, north, south, east, and west. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just praise you that you have revealed to us that which you are doing. We thank you, Father, that you have brought us together into your kingdom. Father, we would just ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit to increase in us an awareness of the times in which we live. Make us sensitive, Father, to those things which are consistent with your word and to those things which offend. Help us, Father, to discern the signs of the times. Help us, Father, to grow in grace the knowledge of our Lord and Savior that we might indeed be fruitful for you, that we might have an increased appetite for your word, an increased awareness of that response that you would have of us to all these things. Amen.